and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The best and most respected leaders shine the brightest during times of crisis, not relying on a crisis management plan. The best managers surround themselves with the best people and provide a platform for growth for those within the organization. As a result, moving to a work from home environment should not disrupt an organization, but simply change the environment from where work is done. In all industries, especially banking, those institutions that have most respected leaders will be the winners. We are very fortunate to be joined today by Tom Peters, one of the most respected names in business for over 40 years. A management revolutionary, Tom was the co-author of what many considered to be the best business book ever, In Search of Excellence. A prolific, best-selling author, Peters has written close to 20 books over the years. In today's episode, Tom shares his insights on what differentiates a great leader during times of massive change. Welcome to the show, Tom. First of all, I need to mention what a privilege it is to have you on the show today. I've been a raving fan of your writings over the years, uh, loving the way you don't hesitate to march down the path of a different drummer at times, to emphasize the skills needed to successfully lead an organization, from gender equality to the importance of what many consider to be soft skills. You're a guiding light to it, what it really takes to become a, an emotional and exceptional leader. So as we look back through time, from your first book, In Search of Excellence, which I think was written in 1982, to Thriving on Chaos, The Pursuit of Wow, and your most recent book, The Excellence Dividend, what has changed in the qualities of a successful leader and an excellent organization? I'm going to start with one other little thing, and then I'm going to answer your question. I talk, as you know, and as we'll continue to do, and as we've talked about in our, in our build-up to this conversation, about the soft stuff. And I just want to make it entirely clear to the people who are listening to us that I have no less than four quantitative degrees so it is not somebody who spends 24 hours a day reading poetry telling you that you should do the soft stuff. I am as hard as it gets. I'm a veteran. I've got two business degrees and two engineering degrees. So I got my street cred on the quant side. <laughs> and I do like to remind people of that. And you've proven through the years, through quant, how important the soft stuff, as it were, is. Absolutely. What was your, I got so wound up. Oh, yeah, what, what's changed? What has changed, yeah. Everything and nothing. The message was people first, and the message is people first. And in fact, my argument, and particularly relative to smaller enterprises, community banks, and so on, that as the artificial intelligence gets more and more extraordinary, those who are going to be able to continue to humanize things are going to be winners. I have no idea, by the way, whether they're going to be winners 25 years from now. But my response to that, and I'd love to get your comeback if you want to, is, you know, forgetting the fact that I'm an old man, is I don't know what's going to happen in 25 years, but I do know that you've got 25 years to get through the next 25 years. 
And I do know the world is not going to flip completely upside down, maybe so because of coronavirus, but we'll hold that for just a second. It is not, from a technology standpoint, going to flip entirely upside down in the next two years or three years or four years or five years. And you know, you and I both and the people who are listening to us, we got to get through tomorrow first. And I think that's definitely the case. I, you know, one thing, and I don't know whether I'm skipping ahead here or not, is uh, I was in the Navy and, and went in in 1966, and I owned a car, and the only idiots who would sell me car insurance when I was heading over to Vietnam was USAA. And, uh, you know, and I don't know what your friends and colleagues think about USAA, but USAA has the best call center in the history of humanity, and it is as good and they answer, yeah, it's a huge company and they answer on the first ring and they have a Texas accent because they came from San Antonio and that's the case in 2020. So anybody who tells me that that kind of stuff cannot be personalized, I, my response is that's a load of crap. And, you know, I just, I love to talk about those guys and, and I do because they do keep it personalized. And, you know, I was, <laughs> they are in San Antonio and, you know, we got talking about, sports and so on with somebody. And I said to the guy who was on the other end of the line, I said, listen, I know people who have your job have a number of calls that you've got to make per day. And somebody is standing behind you with a barrel of a gun stuck in the back of your head. And so I'm more than willing to shut up. And so he said to me, he said, no, no, no. He said, you don't get it. He said, our first and foremost requirement is to build the relationship with you. And so, yeah, if we talk all day, I got a problem. But he said, they're delighted when you and I BS for five or 10 minutes. And I really love that. And as I said, they're, you know, they are a very, very, very big institution. And so don't tell me it can't be done. So in a way, you're saying that really there's more that's remained the same. It's just the tools to deploy against the human aspect, the innovation aspect, the leadership aspect as it relates to hiring has changed more than anything else, that the ways to accomplish these things have changed more than the foundation issues that you brought up in, in the search of excellence, the passion for excellence, as far as what really makes a great organization. I'm so angry that this data didn't come in in time to put in the excellence dividend, but I start all of my presentations today with the same two slides. Google, who is hardly afraid of technology, did a study, and you know if it came from Google, it was not a lightweight study, did a study of their best employees and their most innovative teams. And the fascinating, intriguing, awesome to me, outcome was their best employees. There were eight attributes of best employees identified. Seven of them were soft stuff, and number eight on the list was the STEM stuff. Then they looked at the most innovative teams. And in the most innovative teams, the Google does this thing, which I think is disgusting. You're designated an A player or a B player, which demotivates half the population, but we can come back to that. But the B player teams wildly out-innovated the A player teams because the A player teams were made up of big ego people with 475 IQs who you know, couldn't get over looking themselves in the mirror. And the B-player teams, I listen to you. 
and they paid attention to each other. And so I, I loved it when that came out of Google. And it was a study of 15 years worth of data about their best employees. I loved it. I started weeping when I read the study. <laughs> and you don't know me personally, but that is almost the truth. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's not just about the fact that it reinforces what you believe in wholeheartedly, but that it really does get down to the people. And that's easy to say and harder to sometimes measure and even harder to teach because people skills are not innate, but they are things that get taught over time and get reinforced over time. And it's, uh, we were talking about the fact that, uh, you wonder if uh, a person in a, a huge bank that has those skills, are they still around? Yeah. And the reality is, in some cases, they are because they are passionate about what they do. But in other cases, they get drawn away by firms that really value that differentiation. No, absolutely. And then you get to the worst of the worst, which I lived in San Francisco for or the Bay Area for 25 years, lived in San Francisco for 10 years. And Wells Fargo was a growing big bank, and I knew the people who ran it, and I liked. I cannot believe what they did to create phony accounts and so on. For I mean, good God, yeah, you know, to me, short of um, mass murder and rape, that's you know, that's just it's absolutely it's a it is criminal, and b it's just disgusting, and of course c is it came from the top, right. And that's, I, I do want to, and, and I know this is one of the things we want to talk about. I'm on a kick right now, completely consistent with our conversation. And my kick is the two most important things that you do in an organization are hire and promote. And if you want to focus on the soft stuff, hire it. I think we can help people get better. I don't deny that for a minute because I'm also on a training jag. But, you know, one of my favorite examples that I used in the most recent book was a guy, the last name is Miller, I don't remember his first name, Peter Miller, I think. And he runs a middle-sized growing biotech company. And as you know, and I know, all the people who work in biotech companies are twice as smart as either of us. And his number one hiring criteria is people who are nice. And that's the term that he uses. And he said, look, in my R&D area, I need somebody who has an incredibly sophisticated organic chemistry, molecular, whatever degree. But he said, let me tell you a secret. There are actually a lot of people who have those degrees. Don't hire the jerks. It's one thing to say hire nice people if we're talking about retail or hotels, but it becomes to me 10 times more powerful when it comes from the highest of high-tech companies, which are obviously people like the biotech companies. And, you know, another one that I loved, and I have no idea what percentage of the people who are going to be listening to us are football fans, and I have no idea what percentage of them are a little bit older than young, but the great University of Michigan coach, Bo Schembechler, said that his secret to success and I'm pretty close to using the exact words, is he said, we never recruited the hot shots. We looked for good people. And he said, my teams of good people beat the heck out of the hot shot teams time and time and time again. And then the thing that did bring me again to tears is he said, and the other thing about bringing in recruiting people like that is they had much better 
after football lives. And, you know, and, and Shem Beckler is, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is on anybody, you know, he's, he's there with John Wooden on the top college coaches, if not top coaches, uh, you know, in the history of sport. Well, it's interesting you should say that. We refer to Michigan as the team up north when we're from Ohio. But <laughs> I, know, I know. Knowing that I was talking to a guy from Cleveland, I was very nervous about using Michigan. But, you're, you know, those are the coaches that made their name on the type of people they recruited. And it's interesting. My son uh, isn't his – well, he just finished his senior year, but he's coming back for a fifth year to play lacrosse for a D3 school that he was on the second team ever for the school. So it was a brand new program. The coach was recruiting before he even had a team. And he, it was very obvious, he was recruiting the families as well as the players. And we kind of asked, okay, so yeah, you're looking for skills, but why do you do that? He goes, well, a couple of things. Number one, I know they're going to be passionate for what they do. Number two, I know they're going to be good students, which makes it so I can take that off the list of things I have to worry about. And number three is if I want to promote the importance of family and team, I have to bring in people that already believe in that as opposed to being the superstar on a team, having never had to worry about anybody else. And over the last four years of his team, not only has it proven itself out, but with the COVID crisis canceling the senior year of the program, he has five boys that are coming back and going back to school basically because they want to play that final year of lacrosse. Now, in D3, you have no future career, so it's not a career move. What it is, it's they don't want to leave the family. And it says a lot about, you know, be it a team, be it a corporate organization, or even being a family, the importance of the right people, as you would say. Absolutely. I mentioned before that I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for a long time. And actually, one of my neighbors, who is a Hall of Fame NFL coach, was Bill Walsh of the 49ers. And there was somebody, I think it was Ryan Leaf, Peyton Manning year and so on. And Ryan Leaf flamed out and so on. And Peyton Manning went on to an incredible career. And I said to Bill one time, I said, for God's sakes, you guys are in the recruiting business. How can you F up that badly? And what Walsh said to me is he said, half the coaches and the player personnel directors are conned by the physical statistic. You know, how far can X or Y throw the ball? And he said, at the 49ers, we always hired for attitude, hired for background. My years of living in the Bay Area included Joe Montana, and Montana, you know, was a million miles from being number one in the draft, and Walsh hired him, you know, because he said, I looked at, talked to coaches, looked at him, and it was all about what kind of a human being he was. Right. Well, you know what? In 2003, in your book, Reimagine Business Excellence for a Disruptive Age, you have a section that gave yourself uh, a three-generation report card. In that section, you said that searching for excellence, let alone achieving it, has become more elusive than ever. Has COVID-19 served as a, a great reveal where we are able to more clearly see those organizations that have gotten it right versus those that haven't? Two things. A, I believe it. And B, I hope it. And the reason I say both is there are a lot of people, and I do spend a lot of time on Twitter, and there are a lot of optimists who say things will never be the same, and the people who treated people well will now be looked at as numero uno. I hope that's the case. But end of the day, 
I don't give a damn whether you're a software person, a banker, or whether you run a housekeeping team. You know, I'm an old boy. At the end of the day, you got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. David Brooks is, I just love this so much. I think it's one of the most profound things I've ever read in my life. And it's even better than the, than the Aristotles, as far as I'm concerned. David Brooks is a, a New York Times columnist. Uh, until recently, he was a rock-solid Republican. He's now an independent, but that's another story. He wrote this wonderful column, and he said, there are two kinds of success measures. And he said, there are resume successes, and there are eulogy successes. He said, resume successes are that you had a 4.0 grade point average at Ohio State or MIT or the Hoosie Hoosie Junior College. The eulogy virtues are he was really a great guy and he really helped people. And, you know, I said to somebody, my ex-wife who came from northwestern Missouri, and it is Missouri if you are in the west <laughs> side of the state, which I remind you as an Ohioan and a middle, yep. middle westerner. Don't tell me I can't pronounce the state name. It is Missouri. But at any rate, her father uh, did tombstones. And so I've always said to people, I've seen more tombstones than the average person. And I have yet to see a tombstone that said, Joe T. Jones, net worth at the time of death, $9,372,842.14. You don't put net worths on a tombstone. It's as simple as that. You know, you talk about what kind of a human being the person was, how they were to their family, how they were to their community. And, you know, I've just gotten with the COVID thing, and I, and I believe a lot of people who are paying attention to us are involved in things like community banks. I've gone berserk, and I hadn't gone berserk enough in the past over the word community per se. And my business comment is 98% of the people who do what I do, the so-called God help us all management gurus, act as if the world were the Fortune 50 or the Fortune 500. The reality is that 85 or 90% of us work in SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. SMEs hire over 100% of new hires. The big guys cut, the SMEs take up the slack. And an SME, 100-person organization, a two-person local accountancy for that matter, a 250-person organization, they don't have a responsibility to the community. They are the community. And, you know, the community is the beginning and the middle and the end of the story. And the lovely news is, because there is a God, is that if you are incredibly engaged in your community, you're going to end up with customers who are more attached to you, and you're going to end up with a better balance sheet or a, or a better p and I mean, that's to me, I call that, of all this people stuff I've been talking about, the positive catch-22. If you do the people stuff right over the mid to long term, you're going to have to have big burlap sacks to carry the money to the bank that you're making. So the focus of your most recent book, The Excellence Dividend, was to provide guidance to firms needing to manage business during times of extraordinary change. The book itself was really talking about technological changes where the theme probably is even more important today during changes that are even broader and more wide-reaching than technology. But 
when you talk about organizations needing to change and you talk about community organizations, a lot of time those small and mid-sized organizations lack the resources maybe to make all the technological changes that are necessary, maybe to meet all the regulatory changes that have taken place. And when you see the marketplace moving in banking, at least, more and more toward the bigger players, how do you suggest that the community organizations, the mid-sized organizations, basically compete with those that are, are much more financially able to build the organizations that they have to be built today more digitally? Well, let me make a first statement in responding to that. I don't like to be glib. And I understand in terms of the sorts of things you're talking about, more regulation and so on, that is not going to make life easier necessarily for the average community bank. And so I'm not being a BS artist and saying, you know, if you live a good life, God will automatically smile on you. But I'll use an example, and this may or may not be helpful. I worked at McKinsey and Company from 1974 to 1981, and in 1979, I became a partner. And in order to become a partner, you had to borrow a lot of money to buy shares in the company. It was a bad time to do it. And so we had a deal in San Francisco with TD Bank. And so I borrowed my money from TD Bank. You know, the interest rate was low in 1980. I only paid 24% for the loan. Ha, ha, ha. I'm not joking. But at any rate, I developed a relationship with TD Bank. And uh, I've worked with local branches over the years. And I still do business with TD Bank. Comma. My wife and I moved from Vermont to the south coast of Massachusetts. And the first thing I did was to look for a community bank where I wanted to do a lot of my banking. And we now do business with a bank called Bay Coast Bank. And we do it for a lot of reasons. We do it, among other things, because we work with people who cut lawns and we work with people who help us with carpentry stuff and we work with people who help us with this. And we want to be able to do the automatic pay with them, but we want to do it through the local bank, local banks, local companies that we're paying. And I have no idea what percentage of our banking goes through them versus TD Bank, but I love them. And they have a little branch near me. And I stop into the Bay Coast branch as a matter of course, as a matter of habit, as a matter of requirement, once a month, whether I need to or not, just to chat with the people who are there. And one of the reasons for that is things like the current COVID crisis we're going through or some kind of an amazing Russian hack of the entire banking system. I want friends at my bank. You know, I, the, the reality is that, you know, you could lose a jillion dollars in the kind of hacking that might come on. But I want a neighbor who I can talk to about banking issues and who can help me and so on. And then the other part of it, frankly, which uh, to me is being part of the community, meaning, meaning my wife and I personally, is, uh, and this is, you know, obviously touchy at this moment, but we had a local person. We have a lot of conserved lands and, and he was starting a slaughterhouse. And the only people who would lend him money were the Bay Coast Bank, because one of their missions in life is to help startups in the local community. And so, no, I have not dumped all of my accounts in TD Bank. I'm not going to make a joke about that. But Bay Coast is critically important to me. 
And, uh, you know, we try to do a lot of what we do through Bay Coast Bank. And as the COVID thing came along and so on, we really don't want the people who come and clean the house once every two weeks to be in the house. But we want to pay them for the next several money, months. And we want to pay them because they're equipped to do it. We want to pay them through Bay Coast. You know, that's... Uh, and again, as I said, I don't, I don't want to make light of the issues. And as I also said, I think to you earlier and, and say, you know, in my book, I don't know whether this is going to be a plausible strategy 20 years from now, but to get to 20 years from now, we got to get through the next 20 years. And the world is not going to flip entirely upside down in the next five years. And I believe, in fact, I call it extreme humanization. And by that, I mean the ability to really focus on the humanization is, uh, is going to continue to be a winning strategy and a differentiating strategy. And, you know, I may be, I don't pretend to be up with the software. God alone knows. The last time I did programming was quite a long time ago. But there's a term that I like or a comparison that I like, and it is AI versus IA. And the short-term form is AI is artificial intelligence where you replace people with software. IA is intelligence augmented where you use the software, but you use the software to, to help people be able on a human basis to stick around, stay around, and give the kind of customer service that will continue to attract human beings. Well, you know, you, you look at that, and I think that's where digitalization of any organization becomes very uh, slippery slope, where you try to replace the humans as opposed to humanize the technology. And I think those organizations that you take TD and, and its predecessor bank that used to hand out uh, pens and dog biscuits and everything else. And you, you looked and you said, okay, how do you take the human aspect of what you've done, the one-to-one face-to-face aspect, and how do you put that into a digital application or a digital capability? And organizations are, have found that, that that is the most important thing to do. It is not simply um, trying to automate everything for what is, in effect, a, an efficiency mode, but really to keep the effectiveness there as well. One thing you also talk about quite a bit is obviously the importance of hiring and the importance of culture within an organization. In a, an environment that might end up being, at least for the foreseeable future, either a digital environment where people aren't visiting the physical structures as much or where you might be working from home, do the aspects of hiring and culture change at all in those environments? Well, part of the answer is we don't know because we are truly carrying on a a very, very large-scale experiment, if you will, as we speak. It is my belief, and it's at least a good hypothesis, even if there's not enough data, is we will be doing different things, but the ability to humanize in work from home is going to be even more important than it has been in the past. I think an effective work-from-home boss is going to use different tools, but I think that work-from-home boss 
will be more engaged with his team in a digital face-to-face way than he was when the people were even in the office. You know, when you when you need a bunch of people to accomplish things, you know, whether they're sitting down at home in front of a terminal or, or what have you, we need ideas and people still need to support each other. And people have to keep from going stark raving mad. And I think we've got an enormous amount to learn about socialization and teamwork and innovation. Innovation is not a one-person game. Innovation is when you come up with a half-assed idea and maybe I add a little touch to it and somebody else adds a little touch to it and we test it and it either works or it doesn't work. But innovation is a team game. And, you know, we can go outside to a subcontractor to give us this piece of software, that piece of software, and so on. But to adapt it to our environment requires innovation among our team members. And I believe that's going to require leadership that focuses on humanization, even if the humanization is delivered through the most extraordinarily sexy software known to humankind. I do always put a caveat on it. And the caveat is, I don't remember what the date of the first iPhone was. I think it was 2007 or something like that. I'm not 100% sure what what life is going to be like when people who had iPhones at birth become the average employee. You know, there's this stupid line about 60 is the new 40 or something like that. But speaking speaking of somebody who's over 60, that's a bunch of load of crap. But my one-liner that I always use in speeches is 35 is the new 65. And, you know, it's, it's a joke and it's not a joke. But, you know, the, the kids born in 2007, I don't know what they're going to be like in 2030 when they are in the workforce. But for the immediate future meaning the next five or 10 years, we're not going to have entirely a generation who was born with an iPhone genetically attached to their body. Right. And the technology side of that, and you talked about innovation, is innovation more important today than ever, given the digitalization and also the change that we're seeing from a COVID-type scenario? I think it is. I think that for some significant share of the customer base delivering more and more humanized experiences is going to continue to be a winning strategy. And I know that one thing you and I want to talk about, which really reinforces this, is guess what, my American business friends, It is a women's world, period. And first of all, there is a ton of hard-nosed research that says that women leaders are more effective than male leaders. And women leaders tend to do these very, very strange things, like listen before they open their mouth. But I've been obsessed with the women's issue since 1996, and that's a longer story that we don't have time for. But for the first 15 years of that, I did not talk about women as better leaders. What I talked about is women are not a significant part of the marketplace. They are the damn marketplace. 
Think of the two biggest service industries that we have, financial services and health services. The evidence is so clear that nobody who has an IQ above seven could fight it. Women make all the family health care decisions. Women make all the family financial decisions. You know, he might be involved and his name might be involved, but she made the decision. She decided to go to Bay Coast instead of X or what have you. She decided that this is the way she wanted to handle her investments. And among other things, women, by the way, oh, there's a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite books around. And since we have people who are in financial services, I'm going to not ask them to buy the book. I'm going to tell them to buy the book. There's a woman by the name of Luann Lofton who is associated in part with Motley Fool. And here is the best book title ever, and maybe even including, and I hate to sound sacrilegious, maybe even including the Bible. And the book title is Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl and Why You Should Too. And I just love, I just love that title. And incidentally, Buffett gave it its first review at Amazon when the thing came around. And Buffett said, I'd never heard of this book, but I read it. And I guess she's right. And a lot of the story there is women tend to focus on the longer term. Women tend to focus on the community stuff and the inclusive stuff and so on. And guys continue to be looking to make the next buck with the best trading algorithm in the next, you know, nanosecond. And it's just a fact. And the other part of it is, you know, I'm actually, I'm not even a boomer. I'm a little older than being a boomer, but here's a number, which I think people in financial services and not in financial services can understand. $22 trillion of wealth will come under the control of women within the space of the next five years. And there are two things driving it. Part of it is the boomer generation. Statistically speaking, men have a seven-year shorter lifetime. And so there's going to be an enormous amount of wealth, family wealth transferred directly to women. And secondly, even though we don't have a lot of women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, secondly, women are rising fast into the middle and the relatively senior ranks. The stats have been around forever that say that women purchase somewhere in the neighborhood of 85% of all consumer goods. But a funny little thing has been happening, and that is statistically in the United States, women now constitute well over 50% of professional commercial purchasing officers. And so she is as likely to sign off on the RFP, you know, $3 billion uh, technology investment as he. And, you know, there are guys that listen and there are women who don't listen and ha, 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 ha. But statistically speaking, women tend to approach the world in a slightly different way. And it is now a women's world. And any damn financial services person who doesn't understand that, with all due respect to the people who are listening to it, is a blooming idiot. As I've said before, you, you don't usually stand on the uh, on the fence on something. You're, you go all in. And, and I think you're right. I think, you know, especially in a post-COVID world where I believe empathy 
is going to be even higher valued than ever before because there's going to be a lot of people hurting without any doubt. And um, I think we see that in a leadership position, to have empathy, to understand empathy from a consumer perspective, just as you write about it in your first books, you you didn't put a, a gender to anything you said, but if you look at the qualities that you're looking for, you're more likely to find it in a woman than in a man, as you said. You can give me a lot of examples that aren't true, but I can tell you that as a gender, you're going to get higher rankings if you're a female in many of these categories. My line now, which is much more tough-minded than in the past, is you hire primarily for empathy in 100.0% of jobs. And maybe that leaves some people out on the street who shouldn't be on the street. And I'm sorry about that pre or post COVID world, but I want empathetic people in every job slot. And I sure as hell want empathetic people in every single promotion decision. Leadership is about empathy. That is the first 90%. And we still have this incredible habit of promoting the person who had the best technical record. Well, that's a good thing, and it may have made us a lot of money. It is not a good thing in management, period. All stop. And you know, I go back to that Google story again. All those Google people are smarter than you or me, but the ones who listened to each other, the ones who cooperated with each other, the ones who did not bully each other, they were the ones who did it writing software for Google. And if it's that critical for Google, it is, you know, more critical for 99.73% of the people who are listening to us right now. Tom, we are out of time. And I'll tell you what, you will be the first guest I've had that I want to say, I want to revisit you one year from now because the world will be a truly a different place. But a lot of our questions may have clear answers. But I hazard to guess that the answers are going to fall in alignment with what you found in 1982 and you've found you know, almost 20 times in your writing since then. And I, as I said, it's a distinct pleasure having you on the show today. I'm really glad we're connected on Twitter because it's always good to read what you have to say. And, and again, you don't parse words when it comes to what you believe in and what you've proven to be the key elements of good leadership, good organizations, and good futures. So thank you again for being on the show. Well, I am thrilled to have been been with you. And I am working very hard during these incredibly difficult times to try to spend as much time with people as like yourself as I possibly can because of what you just said. I mean, I, I've always said the greatest frustration in my life is that to understand the things that I am saying does not require more than a certificate of graduation from the fourth grade. People first listen, empathy, and so on. And it is a, I hate to use the term winning strategy, but it is a winning strategy. Well, and, and, and I think we're going to find that it's a doubling down strategy right now. I, I think we're going to find that those organizations, those people that listen, that work on behalf of others, there's going to be, there already are just millions of people that are going to be suffering. And those organizations, those people that are able to reach out and emphasize with those people that, that need help are going to be the winners. Uh, we're already starting to see it. Thanks again. 
Okay, take care. So what an interesting discussion for any of those who were hoping to get very tight, tangible, analytic answers to how you become a, a better leader. You may have been disappointed, but I will tell you that if there's one person that is stuck to his guns on what it takes to be a great organization, to be a great leader, it's Tom Peters. Much of what he said, he said in his first book in 1982. Much of it has been reinforced in his close to 20 books he's written since, but I think the passion for what he believes in and the quantitative results of what has happened as a result of what he said show that he's, he's right on the mark, and I believe going to be even more on the mark in a post-COVID world. Thank you for listening to Banking Transform, rated as a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since the beginning of this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lombrake, and auto engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.